book of Revelation. We've been going through the churches of Revelation, a letter that has been written to these churches from the Lord Jesus Christ. There were seven actual churches, not periods of time in history. Seven actual churches, and they provide for us lessons and profiles of what God is pleased in His church and what God is displeased in His church. And today we look at the fifth of seven churches. We've looked at Ephesus, the church that lost its first love, Smyrna, the persecuted church. We've looked at Pergamum, the church that tolerated false teaching. We looked at Thyatira, the church that tolerated sin. And now we look at the church at Sardis, the dead church. could be called the dead church. Revelation in the last book of your Bibles, chapter 3. And we will be reading from verses 1 through 6. What does God desire of his church? Revelation 3, 1 through 6 makes a profile for us of a church. A church in the city of Sardis and... It reads this. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it. Repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study this morning. Father in heaven, we pray that this church might not be like that of Sardis or Pergamum or Thyatira, Father, but... May it be one that is commended. I pray, God, as we learn now, that you would open the eyes of our heart. Grant to us understanding. Pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might be illumined in our mind, that you would quicken our hearts to heed and hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. USA Today, in an article a couple of years ago, there was an article entitled, Religion Takes a Back Seat in Western Europe, Dublin, Ireland. Quote, it reads this way, I don't go to church, and I don't know one person who does, unquote, says Brian Kinney, age 39, who's studying psychotherapy and counseling at Dublin Business School. Quote, 15 years ago, I didn't know one person who didn't, unquote. Wall Street Journal has something similar, editorial opinion page. It reads this way, quote, Europe's largest churches are often unused these days, reduced to monuments for tourists to admire. Practicing Christianity in Europe today enjoys a status not dissimilar to smoking marijuana. Few people mind if you do so in private, 
But you're expected not to talk about it or to ask others whether they do it too. Christianity is considered retrograde and atavistic in a progressive society devoted to the good life, long holidays, short work hours, and generous government benefits, unquote. Why? Well, there are many reasons, many reasons that have been given for the decline of the church in Europe. And we think about the history of the church. We think that's where the great reformers came from. Martin Luther, John Calvin, those who were translators of our first scriptures, John Wycliffe, John Huss, whoever it might be in church history where the great bastions of Christianity came forth. Why? Europe, prior to World War I, Many people ascribe to what they called post-millennialism type of belief in Christianity about the end times where they believed the world would get better and better and better and better and then Jesus Christ would come. And if you believe in post-millennialism, then of course you want the world to get better. So you emphasize things like being involved in politics, reform or social ills, addressing many of the social ills of the day. And that was a reigning belief until, of course, the world wars came World War One, especially World War Two, and people began to see, you know, the world is really spiraling downwards and people are getting worse and worse. And so they abandoned that belief. But the church had lost its way because it began to focus not on evangelization of the lost, but the moralization of society. In addition, European scholars coming up, coming from the time of the Enlightenment and the modernization of technology and all of this new science that had come in and uh, people began to be much more educated and they began to write, write commentaries that would affect pastors and affect seminaries, liberal scholars, they would dismiss the miracles of the Bible. They would dismiss anything supernatural. They would begin to write about how various things were simply naturalistic. And of course, once the Bible is undermined, then the church begins to decline as well. Not only did the church focus more on moralization rather than evangelization, and not only did they attack the veracity of Scripture the authenticity of the Bible, they began to be much more wedded. And you know, it has a history in Europe of being wedded to the state. The state would build big churches, beautiful churches. Even if you go today, there would be beautiful churches there with taxpayer monies. And, of course, the rector or the pastor or the bishop, whoever it was, was paid by the state. And once you begin to do that, the politics of the country become involved in the preaching that is done. So Europe turned into a very secular place, devoid of spiritual power. When you go today, you can see some of the wonderful, beautiful churches that are merely monuments. Merely monuments, places to go if you want to go and visit and see a beautiful church, but the church is empty. Missionaries who go over to France or wherever it is, friends that I know, people that I've, I've gone to seminary with, go and there are very, very small churches in Europe. Churches of 30, 40, 50, sometimes 70 people or whatnot. Mainly people who are older, not the younger generation. Even if the church is filled sometimes with people, it can be a lifeless church. And that's the profile of a church that God provides us today in the book of Revelation. When we look at this church at Sardis, this church was a church that was alive. But on the inside it was dead. 
writes to the angel of the church at Sardis, who has the seven spirits of God, it says, and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. The seven spirits of God refers as a reference to Isaiah 11.2 when the Spirit of God is described in various aspects of His ministry. He's described as the Spirit of the Lord. He's described as the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's described as the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. So when you see this phrase, He has the seven spirits of God. It's reference to the Holy Spirit who has the Holy Spirit says this to the church at Sardis. Now you've known a little bit about some of the other cities and Sardis here was a prominent city as well. It's one of the first cities It's located next to this river, a river called Pactolus. And in this river it had wonderful, wonderful streams of gold. It was one of the first cities that gold and silver was first mined and Near the city as well, there were the hot springs. Hot springs that people would go and soak themselves in because they believed it had healing power. It was kind of ironic because that church was dead and here they were going to these hot springs that they hoped would keep them alive for a little bit longer. When it said that they had a name, that they were alive, it doesn't mean the name of the church meant their condition. You can look up churches today on the internet and find all sorts of churches that are named alive. You know, come alive, New Testament church, when I googled or whatever it might be. It was the condition of the church. They had a reputation for being alive. They had a reputation for being alive. So this wasn't an empty church at all. It was a church that had things going on. Maybe a lot of programs. I don't know what it is. Maybe they were enthusiastic people. Maybe they were sorts of programs and, 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 and maybe they were, had a lot of activities or there was perhaps had a lot of people. I don't know what it was, but they had a reputation for somehow being an alive church. That was the go-to church. That was the church to, to, to say, well, boy, I wish I could be like that church because they're alive. I don't know what it is, but God, when he evaluates a church, he looked at that church and said they weren't alive, they were dead. The church had a major issue, a major issue, and that was that it was a dead church. On the inside, it was dead. There wasn't anything going on. It wasn't because they didn't sing expressively. It wasn't because they lacked enthusiasm or what it was. It wasn't because of those things. But when God looked into the heart of the people of that church, He saw that it was dead. What does He mean by what it was dead? Well, whenever the Scriptures tell us of people who are dead, other than physically dead... He was talking about the church that was spiritually dead. And whenever a person is referred to as spiritually dead, he is talking about people who do not know God. In Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's how we all were, right? Those who know Him now. He talks about how we were dead in our sin, how we formerly walked in the courts of this world. How we were dead in our transgressions, or in Colossians 2, how we were dead again in our transitions and the uncircumcision of our flesh. It talked about how we were once dead, but then we were made alive in Christ. Because the heart is changed and it's regenerated. But here, there were people in this church that populated the church that were dead. 
that didn't know God at all. This church had a lot of tears. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples? And he said, you know what? Uh, there are tares among the wheats. And the disciples say, oh, no, no, no. What are we going to do, Lord? We're going to pull them all out. And Jesus says, no, if you pull out the tares, then you might also pull out some of the wheat. That's how this church was. This church was filled with people who didn't know God. Who didn't know God and that didn't please God. It always astounds me, churches that are filled with people and they know, perhaps the, the leaders know that there, there are people there who don't know God and yet they encourage them to sing to God, to pray to God or whatever it might be when they, in their hearts, the Bible tells us, are rebellious against God. So we all know when we look at the church, I used to live in Texas and, you know, everybody there, it's cultural to be a Christian. You walk down the street, well, what are you? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, that's how it is in the, in the Bible belts. Dallas is considered the buckle of the Bible belt. And yet we know that not everyone who says that they're a Christian is a believer. When a survey was taken in Challenger magazine, there are a number of people who may attend a church but may not know God. And the article reads, quote, Apparently, Dr. L. Heimers in his booklet, The Falling Away, provides the following estimates from renowned evangelists and ministers. Dr. W.A. Criswell, former pastor of one of the largest churches in America, the flagship of the Southern Baptist Convention, First Baptist Church of Dallas, said that he would be surprised to see, and this church I think has a, some 15,000 members or something, he would be surprised to see 25% of his members in heaven. Billy Graham estimated the percentage of lost people in evangelicals to be 85%. Dr. A.W. Tozer, who wrote the book, The Knowledge of, a Whole, of the Holy, excellent book, put it at 90%. People professing to be believers and yet are not. In other words, there may be many people Many people within the church, perhaps they attend church, perhaps they play church, perhaps whatever reason or motive they have to go, have no saving relationship with God. They may even do a lot for the church or whatever it might be. But in the end, Matthew 7, Matthew 7 verse 21, God gives to us a warning. If you turn there in your Bibles, Matthew 7 verse 21, Jesus is speaking to them and he says that not everyone... Matthew 7, verse 21, about the true way into the kingdom of God. Matthew 7, verse 21, quote, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I mean, these were people who served the Lord. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. People can attend a church like a church at Sardis and say, you know what, I'm, I serve in the church, I give in the church, I do my deal, and I, yet the inside of the heart, there is no regeneration of the heart. The heart has never changed for Christ. And that is the type of person that fills the church at Sardis. John MacArthur writes, quote, What are the danger signs that a church is dying? A church is in danger when it is content, when it's content, to, when it is content, I'm sorry, to rest on its past laurels, 
when it is more concerned with liturgical forms than spiritual reality, when it focuses on curing social ills rather than changing people's hearts through preaching the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ, when it is more concerned with material than spiritual things, when it is more concerned with what men think than what is said, when it is more enamored with doctrinal creeds and systems of theology than the Word of God, and when it loses its conviction that every word of the Bible is the Word of God Himself, no matter what its attendance, no matter how impressive its buildings, no matter what its status in the community, such a church having denied the only source of spiritual life is dead, unquote. The church of Sardis had a reputation, it says here in the text, that it was alive. But inside it was dead. Inside of the heart it was dead. The deeds were not completed in the sight of God, it says. And these were people were living and they were serving alive. In the end, it will be like that. In the end, many churches will be characterized by that. Paul writes to Timothy in his last letter. Do you remember what he wrote? He said, right, they were holding, they will hold to a form of godliness. Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these, unquote. There are some, though, who were alive. There were some, though, who were alive inside this little church at Sardis and he gives them five commands. And your outline should say five commands for those who are in a spiritually dead church. So, if you're a Christian and you're surrounded by this, what are you to do? Perhaps you're struggling because others around you, perhaps they're, they're, they're not exhibiting Christ-likeness in their life. What are you to do? These are the commands for those in that church. The first one is to wake up, he says, to wake up. They were to look around them and to take serious stock of how the church is doing. How is the church doing? Be aware and care, not only to how the church is doing, but the church at large. How is the church at large doing? And sort of the times in which we live today, I mean, we can easily, easily, easily go day in and day out and say to ourselves, my life is fine. I'm doing fine. And not have a care about the church, God's church, God's church whom he seeks to redeem and bring to himself. Do you care about others and how others are doing in the church? Do you encourage them along and wake up to not only their spiritual condition, but yours as well? To wake up the world around us. How is the world doing? How are we doing in terms of, uh, of reaching those who are lost? I praise God for the testimony that I heard at Mission Fest yesterday and praise God for all the people who have the opportunity to be blessed by hearing and being around people who are interested in reaching others for Christ. I was at a little booth. I, I, like, to, I like New Tribes missions, you know, so I go to their booth because they always go out to these places that are out in the sticks and it always challenges me when I look at their pictures and I ask myself, would I be able to do something like that? I go up to the booth and look into the pictures. The guy, the guy comes up to me and he says, you know, we have a bunch of really great college ministries here. Five, six weeks. You know, I said, I don't think I can be a lay that long. But he says, we have some that are three or four weeks. Maybe you might be interested or two weeks or whatnot. And then I read this little article in one of their brochures. He says, uh, reads this way. Barney Enns, an NTM missionary, New Tribes Mission missionary, who ministers in the Malamanda tribe of Papua New Guinea, received this letter from a village 
about two days' hike away. The letter reads this. You may send one of the new tribe's mission workers to us and teach us with God's words. So many years ago, we sent letters to NTM, but NTM couldn't reply. Why? The shortness of new tribe's missionaries... But at this time, we want NTM to send one of the missionary workers as soon as possible. The main problem is, what will be our rights in the kingdom of God? What if at this time a man or woman who hasn't heard God talk dies? Some of us are still alive, but we have not heard God's talk. At the last day of God, will we be able to go to the kingdom of God or not? So you should send one of your missionary workers as soon as possible. That's all. May the Heavenly Father be with you. And it goes on to read that 3,000 ethnic groups still have no access to the gospel. You can be a part of the solution. There are people around the world, people in the church, who have never heard the message of Christ who don't know what it is to live in joy, to wake up with peace, to have somebody to go to when they have a problem, to be able to find answers in the Bible on their own. And you are there. You might work beside them. They might be in your cubicle next to you or whatnot. They might be the student who sits next to you. And the question is, how much do I, how much am I aware of my own condition and theirs as well? Do I care about whether they have a dead life or not? Do I care? Do I care because people die? People die without Christ. I think of my relative. I was called just at the end of last week. I have a relative who passed away and doing their funeral this week. And they didn't know Christ. And their family doesn't know Christ. And, and they need to know. They need to know. They've heard before. I've shared the gospel at another funeral Another relative of mine, and they were there. But still, people don't know. So wake up and see and care. Because God cares. God cares. And we need to care about the things that God cares about. Secondly, he tells those who are Christians to strengthen the things that remain. There were still glimmers of hope, still some type of life or fire within those who were Christians. Perhaps they struggled because it was a dead church and they really weren't being spiritually fed or they didn't feel alive because of the things that people were around them. Maybe they were living in worldliness or whatever it might be and it would rail against their heart. Maybe they were like a righteous individual like Lot who it says in the New Testament that even though he lived in Sodom, it, 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 it pummeled his heart because he was a righteous man. And we find ourselves waning in our walk. God says not only wake up, but strengthen the things that remain. Strengthen the things that remain. And, and sometimes you may even feel, man, my life is slipping away. My Christian life is just slipping away. And it's little by little by little. My prayer life is slipping. I decide, well, I'm not going to do this one day. I'm not going to spend time with the Lord. I think I'll just skip a few Sundays or whatnot. And it becomes more and more and more. And you see it slipping away. And God says, strengthen those things that remind. Get back to the things that you used to do. 
And that is the third thing. He says, remember what they had received and heard. Remember. Not only strengthen, but remember the things. I mean, the worst thing for somebody to say, I used to say as a kid, and when I had a bad attitude, yeah, 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 mom, you told me that before. And we say that to ourselves too, don't we? We say, yeah, you know, I've heard that before. Be good, serve, or whatever. And we come to this thing where we, you know what, it no longer penetrates us, but that's part of our own pride. And we say, yeah, you know, I know all that story or whatever it might be before. But Paul writes in his, Paul writes a letter to his protege, Timothy, and he says, remind them of these things. Remind them of these things and charge them in the presence of God. Charge them in the presence of God to remember. There's a proverb I read. It's not in the Bible. It said, blessed is the man who forgets after he has given and remembers when he has received. Forgets after he has given and remembers after he has received. How often we're so backwards, right? We say to somebody, somebody who's ungrateful, maybe somebody who's, maybe our kids or maybe our spouse. Remember when I did this for you and I did that for you and I, 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 I spent five hours doing that for you and I helped you out there. And remember I gave you that loan and now whatever it might be. And you remember all the things that you've done for somebody else and you use that against them when you get angry or whatnot. You forget how much of the grace of God has been when you've received so much far beyond what we deserve. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has taught us. Remember what we are to do. Remember, some of you have been Christians for a long, long time. And maybe you've attended church for a long time. You know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, maybe most of your life. And yet, what? You feel like it's fading away. And God says, wake up and remember. Strengthen those things that you used to do. And what? Cling to those things. Go back to Christ. And fourthly, He tells them to obey. To keep them or to obey. Yes, I know that. But it's more than just an intellectual knowledge of things. I mean, imagine to yourself, you decide you're going to leave the house to your kids for two months. You're going on a mission trip or you're going on a trip. Just you and your spouse or you and your significant other. You're leaving your house to maybe your brother, or your sister, or whoever it might be. And you write down on this list, don't forget to take out the garbage. Remember to uh, remember to wash the dishes and vacuum my floor every week, and don't forget the uh, you know the milkman comes by once a week to bring by some fresh milk, etc. All these things. Don't forget to mow the lawn, and these are the things. Make sure you pay the bills, etc., etc. While you're on vacation, you decide we're going to give them a call. Don't forget, I forgot to tell you, don't forget to water my favorite flower, which is right by the sink there, because, you know, my mother gave it to me, and it's a very special flower, and I don't want it to wilt. And don't forget to uh, be sure you, you know, haul the garbage out before 6 a.m., because otherwise they won't get it, etc. Feed the dog as well. And then you come back two months later, and there you go. And you come back and there are your kids. You see outside already, you know, your grass is overgrown. They're outside, the garbage cans are filled with pizza boxes. And then you go inside, there you are. All the laundry's right by the, right by the washing machine. And there's even some sort of smell like mold growing underneath. And then you open the refrigerator and all oh, the food's spoiled. And you wonder what's going on. And the bills, I mean, they haven't even looked in the mailbox. It's all stuffed. 
And you say to them, you say to your kids, what in the world is going on? Didn't I tell you to do all of these things? I wrote it down. Here's a big list for you. They say, yeah. Oh, we did. Oh, yeah, mom, dad, we did. We wrote them all down. In fact, here's a little notebook. Everybody has a notebook. We all wrote it down. In fact, every single morning we spend 10 minutes reviewing what we're supposed to do. Then the dog comes by and he looks malnourished. And you're saying, well, we reviewed them every day. Well, why didn't you do any of them? Well, well, we memorized every single one. I mean, we had memory verses galore, memory rules galore. The difference is it's a big difference between knowing and doing. And you would be just as upset with your kids if they did something like that. So God calls us to obey, to wake up and to remember, and fifthly, to repent. Fifthly, He tells this church to repent. They were to turn from sin and to pursue Christ, the cure for sin. And I tell you, if, if, if in your heart there's apathy or complacency, confess that. That's not pleasing to God. In Wabush in Canada, maybe, maybe Leanne might know where that is. I don't know where it is. But apparently this little town called Labrador, Canada, I read about it. It's completely isolated for, one, for a long time. And they finally decide they're going to build a road to this town. They built a road to this town. They cut through the wilderness to read it. Now it has one road. One road leading in. If somebody is going down that road, they realize they're going the wrong direction. There's only one way to get out. That is to turn around and go the opposite direction. And sin is like that. If somebody is doing something wrong, it's not like, well, let's go off and let's take a detour route and kind of swim around so we can kind of play with what we enjoy as a scenery or whatever it might be. It's to turn around and say, you know what, I repent and I won't do that again. We play games in our own minds and we say, well, I confess that and, well, tomorrow I might do that. I'll just confess it again and I'll confess it again. That's not repentance. Repentance is a decision in our heart that says, you know what, by the grace of God, I never want to do that again because it displeases God. That's what he calls these Christians to do. Lest they're what? In verse 3, judgment will come. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come take stock in their situation because God will come at a time and he will judge not necessarily related to the second coming here in this text he could come in judgment or punishment or whatever it is a thief doesn't post a note on your door that says 2 a.m. tomorrow I will come and rob you he comes in a time when you don't know and judgment comes when God and His patience with you runs out and he says, turn from living your own way. And he gives comfort to those who are walking with the Lord. For he says, a few people in Sardis have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. For they are worthy. There were a few who were faithful. A few who were faithful who hadn't soiled their garments, meaning stained or defiled. And back in those days, those who would be faithful, those who would be winners, the special white garments were people that would wear them to festivals or celebrations. Or perhaps those who were celebrating a victory, they would wear special white garments. Or those are the garments that Christ describes that believers will wear to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Those are the garments that in Revelation chapter 5, those who have been martyred and killed for the sake of Christ, they cry out from under the altar and they say, Lord, how long? Crying for what? Justice to be done for them. And what does Christ give them? He gives them white garments and he says to them, a little while longer, a little while longer. Because their victory is there, their purity is there. And they were to be what? Comforted. They were to be comforted. And the promises to those who overcome will be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's not a threat to erase one's name out of the Lamb's book of life. That's not how this is written. It's written as a promise. For at the end of the judgment, God opens the books. And one is called the Lamb's book of life. And if one's name is written in that Lamb's book of life, then one walks into eternal, the eternal kingdom with God. That is a promise. It's a permanent record that if one knows God, if one is faithful in demonstrating their life as a result of their knowledge of God, then one's name will never be erased. That is a position of eternal security. It's a promise that God gives. This church was a dead church. It was a dead church. It was populated with people. Had people in it. But the people, even though they had activity, even though they had uh, perhaps enthusiasm, it was a dead church. When God looked into the heart of the people and saw that they had no spiritual life, because it was filled with unsaved people, people who didn't know Christ. But those who knew Christ... He calls them in their struggle to wake up, to take stock of where their life is at, to strengthen those things that remain, to remember what they had been taught and to cling to those and to repent and to turn, to live in obedience and repentance. That is what God calls us to. He calls us to be aware of the people that are around us as well as our own self to wake up to the world around us and the people around us that we might not be a church that is dead. And it begins with our own heart and life. Take stock of your own heart. Take stock of your own heart to see, where am I with Christ? Do I have a life that is alive because my heart has changed because of Jesus Christ? Do I know Jesus as my Savior? Have I given my life to Him? Have I asked Him to forgive me for my sin? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross for my sin, have I repented of my sin and asked Him, Lord, take my life, save me from my sin and give me eternal life? Or am I one who simply is like this, perhaps enthusiastic here, enthusiastic there, and coming to a church, perhaps not realizing that God's love is extended to all and wants the type of joy and life that God offers to anyone who would come freely. We begin by looking at our own hearts, seeing where we're at and asking God, God, look at my heart and show me, show me where I'm at. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We pray, O God, that you would 
examine our heart. In the light of your word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, which divides between bone and marrow, and God, I pray that you would cut deeply into our own hearts and show us what is on the inside. I do not know, Lord, but I pray, Father, for everyone here, that you would open their own eyes to the reality of their own heart. They might come to you in faith and repentance, for you are our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.